Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that knows the personal is political. Today we have Zoe and Laura. And we also have a very special friend of the pod and guest joining us. Um, you may know her from her former podcast, Feminist Killjoys PhD. You may know her from the Witch episode of our podcast. Or you may know her from her brand new book, which is what we're talking about today, Rust Belt Femme. Welcome, Rachel. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So happy to be back. <laughs> you Yay. may also know her from her selfie game, which is the strongest in the land. <laughs> That is Aww, true. that's such high praise. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, especially from you both. Thank you. <laughs> so I think our listeners mostly know you by now, but in case anyone missed our which episode is the or do you want to introduce yourself? Is there anything else you want to add? Uh I mean, you know, the brief I'm sure we'll talk a lot about my life. I'm sure this episode as we talk about a book about my life, but um, the sort of more current update bio of who I am is um, sort of consider myself an ex-academic and part of the sort of precarious PhD group of people who have random, have found random teaching jobs that, you know, just trying to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, yeah, and I write also, and I'm a cat mom and a witch as, as, as people. People know. They better right. know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like usually when we talk about books, we just start by praising it, which we will do. So, Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I was like DMing you while reading your book, so you already know that, <laughs> but I did really enjoy it. And um, I mentioned this on a quarantine episode we did earlier this week, not sh- whenever it comes out. It probably will come out before this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it is the first book I've read cover to cover in, like, a very long time. Aw. Um, that makes me happy. Yeah. Coming from a Sag, that's, like, the highest praise that I can give. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But what was the decision process like for you to decide to write your book? Um... There are, like, two answers to that question, and the first one is very, like, much about material working conditions, which, hashtag Marxist, makes sense, Mm -hmm. Um, which is that as I was sort of experiencing not not getting secure academic work, not getting a tenure-track position at a university... Um, and working these, eventually, ultimately becoming an adjunct um, who wasn't getting paid to research. You know, the, the deal, if you you know get to be a professor, is the idea that they pay you enough that you're teaching these classes and doing a lot of work, but also, you know, you're not on campus every day, so you have time to, like, do your research. So I was still trying to, like, do academic research, writing articles in journals that most people don't read. Um, and I started getting really angry because I, like, wasn't being paid for it. And you don't get paid, like, when you get things submitted or accepted in in academic journals either. Um, And uh, I was just getting, yeah, like increasingly angry that I was doing this work that didn't seem to serve any purpose and that I certainly wasn't being compensated for. Um, And I really, and I know I think there are some spaces in academic writing where you get to, like I think in certainly in feminist studies and critical humanities, there are academics and scholars that are doing cool writing even within the confines of um, sort of theory. Um, But it's not like as freeing and liberating writing as memoir writing is in my, in my opinion for, for what I like to do. So part of it was like, I just said, fuck it. I don't want to keep writing academic stuff. I want to write this book that I felt like a strong pull to write um, about my life. I've done creative nonfiction, like in various capacities, whether that's like on live journal back in the day Mm -hmm. or, um, Iconic. like various news. Exactly. <laughs> um, shout out live journal. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, or, you know, I've always had some kind of blog or newsletter or something where I'm doing some version of creative nonfiction and my life in Cleveland. Um, so this is sort of the second answer. It sort of felt like I wanted to talk about that part of my life. One, because it's far away at this point. Um, it, you know, I haven't, 
it's my, that was the first 18 years of my life, which was a while ago at this point. And so I had some distance from it. I felt like I could actually like talk about it in a way that was from a healed place rather than from sort of a more raw place. And, um, also because my press who I love very much, it's an independent publisher called belt. Um, they started in Cleveland. They're a woman run, um, independent press that puts out, uh, sort of like their main thing is like kind of more popular academic stuff. So what you're getting wrong about Appalachia is probably one of their most famous books that they've put out um, by Elizabeth Cat, who mm. is also also an ex-academic. And so they do a lot of like accessible academic kind of stuff. Um, and so I also knew that I wanted my memoir to have some sort of like theory and, and some intellectual rigor to it too. And it was from Cleveland and they focus on the Rust Belt and the Midwest. And uh, so I was like, that has to be the home for it. So that was a really long answer of saying like, mm -hmm. I was sick of academia and I found this amazing press and those yeah. things turned into that. Oh, one tight, one more quick thing. Uh, yeah. A palm reader in New Orleans also told me that I was stifling my creativity and I needed to, to, to get back into like creative work. So I was like, I will listen to you. Oh yes. yes. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long were you writing it? Like what, what was like the timeline of that? Um, so that palm reader in New Orleans was, oh, I'm, I always mess up the years, but I think it was 2016. And uh, I wrote like an introduction that wasn't, didn't end up being the introduction like that summer. And then I was still teaching and still adjuncting. And I, I just started, um, that's when I became a, became a morning person. I started waking up at five in the morning to like write and do a practice of writing and so wrote various versions that most of which are, did not end up in the book um, pr probably since, yeah, 20, 2016, maybe that was 27, I think 2016. And then it got, I pitched it with very little of it written in 20, oh my goodness, 2018, mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know. A couple <laughs> years. <laughs> that was the question, right? How long? Was the question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a couple years. It was... But the bulk of it was within a year after getting it. Mm -hmm. um, so there were like early, early smatterings, but the bulk of it was within about a year. Yeah. Um, I know this is, you know, mainly what we spoke about with your decision to do it as well. But the thing that I really loved about the book is that it, the book itself is really a look at class politics, gender, race, and sexuality. And you tie it up in this memoir style of writing. Um can you talk a little bit more maybe about like the choice to highlight these issues through the personal? Yeah. Um, and thank you for saying, I'm glad it comes through. Like I, that it feels important to me when people are able to connect to like those broader themes. Um, so I think the decision to do that again, yeah, it is connected to that. Like I really like creative nonfiction and it's just more freeing to be able to talk about, um, to just write that way. I just really, really, it's just, it's very organic for me to do that kind of writing, but I'm also, you know, a Marxist and somebody who really likes theory and like, you know, very political. And I couldn't, I couldn't write a book about my life without talking about politics and theory and gender, race, class, and sexuality. Um, right. and I, yeah, so I think it, it just felt like I couldn't not. And um, there are, I think, I'm a person who also, in, in addition to enjoying writing memoir style, I really love memoir. Like I um, I think actually on the queer fiction episode, Zoe, were, were you saying that you struggle with fi reading fiction? Or am I imagining yes. that? No, yeah. I did say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do too. And I wish that I didn't, but I like read political theory, academic, stuff and memoir like that's what I that's it and like which books like you know spiritual stuff yeah um yeah. but uh so I just love I just like love how um memoir I think enables I I this word can feel really Pollyanna-ish but like empathy that I think is actually very deeply important to like our political struggle mm -hmm. um and I think memoir has a is like does a great job of that and Admittedly, I'm drawn to memoir written by people who I sort of identify with. But anytime I read memoir written by somebody who's, you know, not white, for example, or not queer or whatever, like whatever, um, I do feel more connected to their story. And like I, I am able to tap into deeper empathy. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so that also feel it feels like a good vehicle to to talk about um, to talk about those things. And another just quick note on that is like whether it's people from my hometown or different people that I've built community with, like in various jobs that I've had that would never go out and read an academic book, not because they're not mm-hmm. smart enough or whatever, but it's just like not their thing. They're not going to like it wouldn't be at Barnes and Noble. They're not going to like it just yeah. like it's just not their thing. And so it also felt really important to to write in a genre that was just that more people would be willing to even pick up. Absolutely. Um, you kind of talking about memoir as a form made me want to know what your favorite memoir is. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to pick a favorite. I mean, so Michelle T, I won't just pick one book, but Michelle T is like very much my idol basically. Mm-hmm. And she is somebody who I really, um, have admired and adored for her writing about being a queer femme for a long time. So I wouldn't just pick one of her books. She writes a lot, a lot of different kinds of different memoirs. Um, since memoir isn't memoir is not autobiography. So you can have multiple memoirs about your life. Cause it's like a part, a theme on right. an aspect of your life. Yeah. Um, so definitely Michelle T. Um, I'll give a shout out to a book that I read last year uh, that I was really hesitant to read because it's about, so it's uh, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by Takira Madden. Mm. And um, Takira is of the Madden, like Steve Madden family. So she has, a her family has a lot of money. Mm. And I was like, I don't, I, it's very difficult for me to care about rich people. <laughs> um, but it was getting like a lot of good reviews um, and we were, she's writing about her life in a similar era. She's only a couple years younger than me. And it was a beautiful book and her parents, she grew up, her parents were addicted, her, were addicted to drugs. And she had, I mean, it turns out like rich people are also harmed under capitalism because, you know, everybody's alienated from everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, wow, if I even, this memoir even made me like have empathy for rich people, like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> um, which I think is a testament to the book in her writing. Yeah. So I want to give, give her a shout out. And it's, it's a very compelling, it's like very kind of compellingly written. So that's a recent one. I could, I could keep going, but those are just a couple. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. One more. Yeah. Maggie Nelson. <laughs> y'all know, do y'all know Maggie Nelson? I don't. She's a queer academic and she does a similar, um, she was very much inspirational to me in terms of blending theory into memoir. So um, her book, The Argonauts is um, really beautiful and a good one. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite memoirs now is um, called Rust Belt Femme. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty good for sure. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that's been actually a really fun thing about having this book out like you're not the first person to like start like they're gonna say something about some other random book and then they say my book and I'm like oh <laughs> yes we love it <laughs> and we'll never get old <laughs> yeah but one thing that I really like related to in the book um which I think like yeah one of the strengths of it is there's like a lot of kind of different aspects that are relatable for different reasons but I really liked when you were talking about how growing up you like understood the concept of solidarity without kind of having that word for it because for me like when I was in preschool I was like super super shy I would not talk to anyone and then I magically became best friends with this girl Maggie who I'm friends with to this day and our parents became friends because we were two and became really good friends um and like all our parents worked so they ended up like kind of making a schedule where they like took turns picking us Mm -hmm. up and it was very much like kind of one big family like I really saw like her parents as like second parents and like her siblings were like siblings to me Mm -hmm. um and like even it's kind of weird like kind of knowing people your whole life that know so much about you like when I saw her recently and I was telling her about my cousin's wedding and she's just like oh yeah it's like you're one still aunt still like doing that thing that like right. pisses you off and I was like oh my <laughs> god like how do you know that <laughs> totally point being I really related to um yeah that part of it I wanted to like talk a little about that aspect yeah um I love that story. That feels very like familiar of just like a bigger notion of family, um, like outside the sort of nuclear capitalist family, like heteronormative capitalist family of just like 
parents and children and that's it. And it's like, no, actually it's like about, it's like a community, not, you know, not in this, whatever it's yes. It's, I just think that I just appreciate that story anyway. Um, (laughs) yeah. So in addition to that, in addition to the fact that like, we also had, you know, our house was very rarely just even, even before, um, the, my dad was in the car accident that happens, that happened when I was four, that, that happens early in the book. Um, you know, we just had like this rotating crew of people, whether they were there staying with us because they couldn't afford rent or because they were just, it was just like, that's what you did. Like our doors were, we left our doors unlocked. People came over, like, you know, you sat on the porch, you did whatever. Um, I think that the fact that we knew to understand I really do think it's about like expanding a little bit that notion of family because we um, we just wanted to have each other's back. Like we just loved each other um, as people who we knew were sort of struggling with similar things in terms of economic struggle. Um, and I talk in the book about like just the rotating whoever could babysit babysat because mm-hmm. like that's what you had to do if somebody had to go to work. Um, and uh, yeah, and then also things like the fact that we would of course give our couch to our friend who couldn't afford rent that month because like, that's like, why wouldn't you? Whereas I think like capitalism teaches us like, you know, private property and like your private space and your private home um, is so like, that would be such an infringement on that. If um, I think for, for folks perhaps who, who grew up maybe with where that wouldn't be the norm to have sort of strangers coming in or not strangers, but friends coming in and out. Um, yeah, and like we would use food stamps to feed our friends and um, not call the cops on people and things like that. And so it was very much like protecting people and having an understanding that we were in it together. And even though, again, the art, nobody was articulating like an injury to one is an injury to all and the, and the enemy is the boss and not mm-hmm. each other, like nobody was using that language. Mm-hmm. But like it was so easy for me when I like got an introduction to like left politics for that to click it was like well yeah of course um yeah does that make sense yeah 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 yeah. I think it's always like interesting something I think about that people with access to less resources tend to want to share them more than people that let's say hoard resources and well totally um like my mom was always like, yeah, anyone that was over was like, welcome for dinner. And and she would talk about like how like her mom was like that, like their house was always open for like people to come over for dinner or for like whatever. And so like she was used to that. Yeah, totally. Mm. I think there's like studies about that, that people with that makes sense. give more. Yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to specifically talk about grief because um, there's a, but I think grief is a, another huge theme in your book. Um, and as someone who has recently experienced a lot of grief, as well as someone living in the world right now, which is one community grief experience of the mm-hmm. life we were intending to lead this year. Um, what does grief mean to you and how does grief influence your leftist politics? Whew, that is a beautiful and heavy question. Um, yeah. So, so to give some context for folks who haven't read the book, um, so my my the car accident my dad was in, he was left with he was in a coma for a long time. We didn't know if he was going to live or not, and then he he did live, but um, and to this day is alive with a very very severe brain injury that um, made made him a very very different person than he than he used to be, and so I think at four years old, I had a very quick introduction to like grief that was not, um, just not, not just, but like grief that expanded traditional, like somebody dies and that is what grief is. It was like, it was about loss. Um, and, uh, so I think that's one thing that is also helpful for this sort of moment in time. It's like, yeah, grief, grief can be about a lot of things. Um, can you can you can you repeat like specifically what you were saying? Like, what does it mean to me? And yeah, there was what a does second it mean part. to you? And how does grief influence your leftist politics? Mm, mm, mm. That's okay. Yeah, that's. I was going to tangent someplace else, so thank you for bringing me back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, that's 
such a beautiful question. I think, so there's, I was politicized by the Iraq war Mm -hmm. and that to me was about people dying that shouldn't die, including Iraqis and prime among, you know, especially Iraqis. Um, And uh, it was very, it was very much from like a bleeding heart liberal place at the time. Um, before I had an introduction to actual leftism, I was like, I care about people not dying and I don't want people to die. And it was also interesting. And I don't think I'm as explicit about this in the book, but like, I didn't have, I didn't understand myself as like a working class person or even, I mean, I, I knew that we were like poor at certain times, but it, I didn't have that language for class identity since you don't, you're not like taught that in school, like about class. Um, so it was so I, I also was like doing the bleeding heart liberal thing of like, well, there's homeless people and then there's everybody else. And like, I'm not homeless. So like, I must be, it must be not that bad. And so I also had this like compassion for like homeless people. It was very, it was very like bleeding heart stuff, but I think there's value in that. Like I'm, there was, I think a time in my politicization that I like tried to turn off that, like just, the sort of gut impulse to just care about human lives above as, as the impetus for all of this. And then I think there was a moment when I was like, well, it's about, you know, much more militant, like redistrib- blah, blah, blah. I don't know, more militant theoretical stuff. But I think at the end of the day, the thing that's always driven me is like very related to grief, whether it's like actual human life mm-hmm. being taken or, quality of human life being taken and I think there's grief in all of that definitely yeah um well kind of going off that something that stood out to me in the book is of course like how vulnerable you were and like open about a lot of topics that are considered taboo um which I feel like is something we talk about a lot on the podcast because we try to be vulnerable because as we know the personal is always political in some way or another but what was the process like for you to decide like how much you wanted to share and how does it feel now that that's like out in the world and people are reading it? <laughs> uh, it, it was really <laughs> awful for a little while. Um, right. Like writing it was, um, I didn't hold, I mean, there are certainly things in that I, that I, that are still private in my life that people don't know about from that part of my life. Um, yeah. but but I still told a lot. I mean, I was, like you said, like there's a lot of vulnerable stuff in there and I, I didn't hold back a lot and writing it. I didn't have a lot of, um, hesitancy about it. Uh, it felt like this was a story I want to tell. I also offered it to basically any character who has like a significant part in the, so my two best friends from home that I talk about at length, the two sort of predominant love interests in the book and my mom, I offered all of them to read it. Um, Mm -hmm. and everybody other than my mom took me up on that. And that's, that has been hard because my mom, um, has been so supportive, but she's very, she's been very afraid to like confront, I think some of those parts of my childhood and her part in it. So she still has not read the book, which is actually that I was going to ask you about what your mom thought. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, yeah, I wish I could give a more full answer, but at this point she's, um, I think she feels a little too tender to, to go there. Um, but she has been super supportive, like hand clap emojis every time I repost a book, like thing on Instagram and lots of texts and lots, you know, and we've had good conversations about it, but she's just has not read it yet. But, um, anyway, so I say that though, to say like, I knew that the people who I was talking about for all, for the most part, um, we're going to be able to see it. So that was also sort of guiding me and what I wanted, you know, what exactly I wanted to say. There were things about my friends that I, um, you know, knew wasn't, it wasn't for me to tell certain parts of their story and things like that. Um, but in terms of the stuff that, that was about me, um, yeah, I mean, I think, a lot of it is politically motivated. Like I'm very invested in, you know, I don't know, people knowing that sexuality starts early and isn't bad and that it can look, you know, a lot of different ways. Um, 
I'm invested in telling a more, you know, complex story about, you know, different, whether it's different, very, you know, what, what, what it means to be the white working class and like how there's different stories of that. Um, and, and sometimes that, that means showing parts that don't look so good. Like, I think that that's also okay to lean into when I'm also sort of countering it with these things that people would be surprised about, maybe about that demographic of people perhaps. Um, and, uh, I don't know. So, so I, I guess there, I felt, you know, like this was, it was good and right to do this as I was writing it. And then about two months before the book came out, I started having like the worst anxiety of my entire life. Mm. And it, that it lasted for almost a solid two months. And I like still haven't, I mean, that happened. And then I was like, finally, like making peace with it, like practicing some good radical acceptance about what I chose to do. (laughs) And then coronavirus happened. So I like, haven't slept well in about three months. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been to be on the other end of it. I mean, I think it's, um, again, the thing about memoir, I've been so grateful for people who have been really vulnerable in their writing and it's helped me. And I've already gotten messages from people who have said, thank you for, you know, sharing particular parts that I've shared that were scary to share. And that feels, that feels worth it. Um, but yeah, there are some things like my Nana read it and that was tough. (laughs) My (laughs) Nana texted, my Nana texted me and she was like, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And I was like, Oh, I, I, so that, you know, there's certain people that (laughs) like my partner's mom read it and it's like, Oh, I talk a lot about sex. Like, ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, it's been, it's been a mix. It's been a mixed bag, but yeah. Can I, yeah. I mean, y'all, y'all share personal, whether it's, I mean, whether it's on the podcast or the internet, like how, how do you like navigate that? Can I oh. turn that question back? Yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, I feel anxious about it all the time, yeah. <laughs> but also like, as you were saying, I think it's like a good thing to do. And we do hear from a lot of people that like, it helps them mm-hmm. like either think about those things or be able to like share their experiences. So, I mean, I do think it's really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's very anxiety inducing whenever like a relative is like, Oh, I'm like, I listened to your podcast. I'm like, mm-hmm. please don't. Like, <laughs> talking about this yeah in a similar way (laughs) right yeah partners uh parents listening (laughs) yeah hi yeah you enjoy it (laughs) uh, mom recently was like oh should i start listening to it and i was like i don't know (laughs) (laughs) well it's it's been interesting i for me i feel like i generally lean towards being very vulnerable um because it feels good to do so, but there there are things that I chose specifically not to really talk about. Um, specifically, you know, I went through a really intense breakup after a six year relationship and didn't uh, didn't drag my ex, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I feel like is you know the the one side of vulnerability that I I didn't want to show. Um, if that makes right. sense, because I was like I don't. Okay. I don't want this to be about another person. I'm happy to share things that I'm going through, but I don't I don't want it to like, I don't know. That's that for me has been kind of the line is like I'll share stuff about myself, but when it, it starts to have to do with other people, that's where I try to rein it in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um Yeah, I feel like uh you know, some of the taboo subjects that you faced head on were trauma, disability, having your foot into classes, you know, being an academic now or, or kind of having that academic path at least, and but growing up in a very different situation. And also your feelings on being a slut, which I fucking love. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like just building off of Zoe's previous question, I mean, for me, it felt really powerful that you were talking about these things in such a frank way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like for those folks that don't have your book yet, which they should very soon, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a short read. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's a small book. And um, with that. And what else are you doing right now in quarantine? <laughs> that <Honestly>. is true. <laughs> but what I mean is I think a lot of authors take a long time to get to the point Mm-hmm. that they're trying to make. And I really appreciated that even with these really taboo subjects, you kind of 
just kind of faced it head on, or at least it it felt that way. It's it's interesting to hear you. I knew you were feeling some anxiety as things were were coming towards it, um, just from some of our interactions on social media. But even hearing you talk about it, it's wild because for me, when I was reading your book, it just the whole thing feels so brave. Um, mm. And so I guess just kind of expanding more on what we were just talking about, like why is talking about these issues in such frank terms so important? Hmm. Um, well, thank you for all the kindness in that question. Um, I, th- I think that certainly, I mean, this is very obvious when it comes to like sexuality, that like stigma is such a huge part of um, like, Violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it creates stigma, creates violence, as we know, obviously. Um, and so I think I feel deeply lucky to be part of like to have found like queer and left community where um, where it is OK to talk very frankly and openly about whether it's sex or or disability or class or race or any of the other things. Um and it, that's felt very liberating. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, which is, again, why when I was writing it, it didn't feel particularly scary because I have been able to do that in, in different community spaces. Um, it was certainly different to have it, like, documented on paper, like, permanently than it is, like, in a conversation you're having, like, at a party or whatever or at a meeting. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think a lot of it is about the frankness helps to destigmatize it. Um and, uh, yeah, that's, I think I'm struggling more like to, to, because it, it really did just kind of feel, um, intuitive. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It felt, mm-hmm. it felt intuitive to, to do that. And it's, yeah. And it has been interesting because, you know, there's a lot of different people from a lot of different parts of my life who have, who have read the book. And I think the reactions probably are you know, for example, from my Nana, who's not in like queer left spaces, um, (laughs) a lot of the, yeah, the frankness is probably kind of shocking to her. Whereas I think other people are like, oh yeah, like you basically say this on Instagram, it's fine. (laughs) Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but like, for example, like I, I never, I don't really talk about my dad at length because it's incredibly still to this day, difficult and tender for me to think about my relationship to my dad. So that's not like I go on at length about that, but that's another thing like disability is um yeah just not discussed enough and I really want to just credit like disability activists Mm -hmm. and uh, um the disability justice movement for helping me find language to even process what it what it means to have a disabled parent and um yeah so I that's not a beautiful answer but yeah no it is yeah (laughs) can can I add on to yeah Yeah, your question. Um, Because something I was thinking about, and this is something that Sylvia Federici talks about um, in her in her newer book, but like one thing with like women staying in the home, like especially at the onset of capitalism is that like when women do like come together and share their stories, that's how a lot of like feminist movements and like organizing has started because women realize like, oh, I've also experienced that. So it's not just like me, like we're all being treated this way. So like that feels of importance more so than like, if it's just me, maybe it like doesn't really matter as much. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, that's a great answer to that question. (laughs) Um, Yes. No, but absolutely. And again, that goes back to like the way I've felt reading memoir and being like, oh, my God, I'm not completely I'm not the only person who thinks this or does this or feels this. Um, Yeah, I actually like as a specific example, like I read memoir that talks about mass. Like I actually write about it in the book. Like it wasn't a memoir, but I read a fiction book that talked about masturbation and it was like life changing for me because I learned how to masturbate when I was really young. (laughs) And so like, I knew I was going to talk about masturbation in the book. Cause like in case I'm like, whatever 10 year old girl gets it and like, doesn't quite know what she's doing. Like there's some tips, like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just like, that's like a sort of silly, like light example. But, um, Although not really, because like, I don't know, young girls are denied sexuality in so many ways. But um, yeah, yeah, I think that's so true. And certainly, um, certainly a part, you know, a part of a political project is to remind each other that we are not, you know, rugged individuals, that we are actually like 
experiencing like very, very similar things because of Go the ahead. structure. Oh dear. Oh, Siri just. Hi Siri. Siri surveilled me. Wow. Um, oh, Siri wants some like feminist storytelling love. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Siri. <laughs> um, she's very alienated. Siri's but like, um, I'm trapped in a box too. Just right. Like box. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, that's I think that's um yeah, a very lovely point is that these stories really matter. Yeah, for sure. Um so this book also meant a lot to me from a geographic standpoint as someone living in Buffalo and growing up ar- around mm-hmm. Buffalo, living in a bu- Rust Belt area uh has occupied most of my life and is a really specific phenomenon. Um, can you talk yes. a little bit about the Rust Belt specifically and what this region means for working for the working class or anything you want to talk about with relationship to the Rust Belt? Yeah. Um, f- yeah. So I think a lot of what my book is trying to do, there's a lot of people who I've had a couple interviews where people haven't read the book, which is fine. Um, but they see the title and they think that it, and they get the summary and they think it's going to be like about how hard it was to be like a gay kid in the bigoted, you know, awful conservative Rust Belt, mm. which is like clearly like none of those things are what the book is. <laughs> Did people um, interview yeah. you without reading it? Uh, there was, I've had two, I think at this point, two where it was very obvious the person had not read the book. One would, there was like co-hosts and one person had read it and the other person hadn't, which oh, is wow. very clear. Um, yeah. yeah, 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 which, you know, whatever it is, that is what it is. Um, honestly, I'm judging them though. I don't know them, but I, I am judging them. <laughs> okay. Um, um, I mean, that would be, you know, I like want to give, you know, meet the, the media y'all like you have a lot of work to do, you know, it's, it would be a lot for everybody. I don't know. Does Terry Gross read every single book? Do you think? I don't know. Maybe. I have no idea. I but, don't know. I anyway. Mean, for me, I'm like, if really. you sent. I don't know. For me, I'm like, well, this person who took the time to write this book sent us this book. I'm going to read it and like what? I don't know. It's wild to me. But anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Um, So one thing. So I'm about to answer this question about this best, like what it means to be in the Rust Belt. But I want to preface it with this, like part of the project of my book is like to say that the Rust Belt is not one thing. The white working class is not just one thing. Like being queer is not just one thing. So with that caveat, um, I think there are a lot of things that you and I, you from Buffalo and me from Cleveland probably can relate to. And one of those is um, early, early lessons, even though it wasn't explicit in terms of like class, like knowing what class is because you're surrounded by like blue collar workers that fit this sort of traditional like factory model that we sort of you know, that Marx sorts of writes, sort of writes about. Um, And so we get like who the workers are in this very sort of visceral way, because whether it's our dads or uncles or Mm -hmm. kids we went to high school with or whatever, we see these people like in these very blue collar positions. And of course there's blue collar positions all over the country, but there's like this aesthetic to it. Like Mm -hmm. these, like you literally see men walking into factories with their names sewn on their shirts. Like it's this like, Mm -hmm. and again, I'm not trying to say that's nowhere else in the country, but it feels very, it is like thick. Yeah. And it also like all of the paternal people in my family worked for Lackawanna steel, um, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. was the steel factory. Um, I'm sorry, Bethlehem steel. (laughs) Yeah. Not Lackawanna Steel. It's in Lackawanna. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Bethlehem Steel. Um, but it's, it's, that's, I grew up with the imagery of that too. Totally. totally. Yeah. And then you always have, you always have that connection because somebody has somebody who works at, at the steel factory. It was the same in Cleveland, LTB, um, before people got laid off. So that was another exactly. thing about the Rust Belt is that even beyond it, I think it was like a good less early lesson for me as a Marxist and a leftist to know that like the problem isn't like a specific recession or a specific bad president. It's like people have been struggling with layoffs and with bosses like forever, no Mm -hmm. matter what time it is, because I saw people get laid off and then get hired. You know, like I saw people struggle with work, I think in in a very, perhaps, I mean, I didn't grow up anywhere else, so I don't know, but it felt unique 
uniquely Rust Belt in this way that I sort of experience labor so viscerally. Well, and and also I think unionized labor to, yeah, to a large extent totally. too, where I think that, you know, wasn't as widespread in a lot of areas, you know. Totally. Um, yeah. My grandpa would tell me stories all the time about his union bosses and also going on strike. He was very bitter yeah. about his union bosses. However, he also would always go on strike and like had a ton of like – uh, union garb that was like, don't be, <laughs> don't, totally, don't be a scab, <laughs> like that right. Stuff. So <laughs> that's good. amazing. That's that's also funny because my mom, when she was a brown derby waitress, um, she did not like her union boss either. She said he would like he had like a fancy car and like wore gold jewelry, and yes. she like really didn't like it. <laughs> but but she was still like you know for the workers because she was a worker. Yeah. Um. That's so that's funny the union boss story. But anyway, yeah. So I think that's totally true. Like union, like heavily in terms of density, like there's, there was factory work, union work, like you said, labor was just prominent. And I also think that just like culturally, um, there's, there is this like sometimes problematic, but also I think true because, because if you remember from last episode, I'm a Pisces moon, so I'm very romantic about things. Um, <laughs> um, it's like cliche to talk about the resilience of the Rust Belt, but it's also like fucking true. Like I just saw people like really fucking like do their shit anyway, even when literally Cleveland's river was on fire, the steel plant shut down and like people figured it out. And so there's just like sort of the scrappy resilience of, I think that of that, of like our geography that again, people from all over the place are probably like, I, you know, of capitalism impacts everybody everywhere, like yes, but yeah, there it just felt really salient. Mm-hmm. I also think there's something to there it being um, a lot of like second wave immigrant um, mm-hmm. families. So like Buffalo is predominantly Italian, Polish, and Irish, yep. um, and very Catholic. Yeah, <laughs> um, which which you know at the time of those people immigrating to the United States was was a second class within itself, and of course yep. we can critique that from you know the that they were generally all white at this point, and you know have been able to have the benefits of their own white privilege, and at the same time the reason why they didn't weren't in places like New York City or otherwise is because um, there was no space for them there. Totally. Totally. That's, yeah, such a good point. And it was similar in Cleveland. It was Italian, Polish, and Slovenian were, I think, the, are, I don't know about today still, but that that's what felt like, that's what it felt like as a kid. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. yeah. I think Buffalo is known for the largest Dingus Day celebration in the world. Oh! <laughs> Which, for Amazing. those of you that don't know, it's the day after Easter. You can look it up. It has to mm-hmm. do with smacking people with pussy willows. It's very fun. <laughs> well i think we're getting close to an hour but we wanted to leave some room here at the end if you wanted to read a passage or a chapter however much you want honestly from the book um yeah that's such a nice offer this will be my first reading so i'm just gonna (gasps) grab grab the book wow (laughs) because covid ruined my tour so yeah it's my first wow. meeting here it is amazing <laughs> it is. Wow. and it's season of the bitch exclusive yeah exactly oh exactly <laughs> um so this is chapter four and so for some context um i would not call this a book of essays i think there is some linearity to it even though it jumps kind of all over the place at times um but there are these chapters that are sort of standalone that talk about sort of a theme and this is early in the book chapter four talks about a creek that I grew up so really the land that I grew up on so this is um called otherwise I am fine ghosts of tinkers creek specters of the canal tinkers creek is off of canal road which means we pass the ohio and erie canal every single day when we get a rainstorm in the valley the canal nearly always floods At least one group of boys or men will take a raft out onto the street, paddling through the rising waters as the rest of us scoop out our basements with children's pails and buckets from our garages and tool sheds. When the water is calm, it is brown, surrounded by a mess of trees and wild weeds. Water is organic and bodies are too, but the depths of many of our canals, our lakes, our rivers, someone had to make them. The Ohio and Erie was made primarily by Irish immigrants, digging and dying for a flask of whiskey and 30 cents a day. The impetus behind the canal was largely to make rich men richer. 
State Representative Alfred Kelly wanted a cheap way to transport goods between Lake Erie and the Ohio River. And so he put to work immigrants who used picks and shovels to break 308 miles of earth and who hauled and hoisted and hurled large sandstone rock to create locks for the water. Many of them died. Their immune systems broke in from 12-hour days, easy targets for malaria, what they called canal fever. According to Cleveland's National Park Service, an Irishman was buried for every mile of canal constructed. I think about those bodies like rungs of a ladder lined up beneath the soil of the land where I sunk my bare toes. I think about their banal sacrifice, the expectation that one would work from dusk until dawn and likely catch a fever that would leave you dead, that the hard line of negotiation was whiskey because anything better was unrealistic and how else could you cope? In 1819, an Irish worker named Timothy Gojigan wrote a letter to his sister. I don't know, dear sister, if any of us will survive, but God willing, we will live to see a better day. Six of my tentmates died this very day and were stacked like cordwood until they could be taken away. Otherwise, I am fine. There is actually a cemetery on Tinker's Creek hidden in the woods a mile or so from where I grew up that is said to be full of Irish bodies, native bodies too. The only graves, though, belong to white settlers, which in the early 19th century didn't include the Irish. And so there is this earth and the bodies of indigenous people who were killed and buried in split logs, and then above them the bodies of the Irish, and then more soil, and above that the bodies and caskets of white people with a little more money and graves that give them names eternal. I have Irish in my blood, although I don't think of them any relation to these workers, but I feel them in this history, in my memory of how the air in the valley was always just a little bit thick with spirits. And I certainly feel as the, them as the roots of my convictions. Knowing I was reared on the bones of exploited labor is maybe just as significant as being parented by an exploited laborer. There is another ghost I only just learned about as an adult who I hope maybe also haunts me. Her name was Mary, but I believe she would have chosen differently if she could have. Historical documents describe her as a, quote, cross-dressing pig farmer who was eccentric but agreeable. She lives in the house that would later be occupied by a wealthy white family called the Gleasons, then eventually owned by the Wiggenfelds. Prior to that, the barn was home to the suicide of a boy I went to school with. But this person, who I think if she had been lucky to live in a different era, would maybe identify as Butch, existed just a few houses from me. I think about her strong hands wearing overalls that she wasn't supposed to wear, a quiet queer without community or the language for it, feeling closer to her pigs than other humans. In my construction of her, from the sparse details I have, I start to develop a crush. How gentle she must have been. How much I would have liked to kiss her. When I'm 30, I visit home for Christmas and go inside the house where she lived. I had ordered some flowers from Megan, the daughter of the Wiggenfelds, who lives there part-time, who was a year younger than me in school and who I like very much. We don't talk about Mary, but we talk about ghosts. About the boy we knew who took his life. About how she feels spirits there. And also about the night of my dad's accident. I've never told you this, she begins, but my mom was the one who found your dad after he was hit by the car. I had no idea. I feel the wind knocked out of me. It's actually what made her want to become a nurse, she says. That night changed her life. Megan and I weren't particularly close in school, but after learning this about her mom, I feel uniquely close to her. Both of our moms touched my dad's body that night. It feels significant. The Gleason pig farmer Wiggenfeld house is the first house on Tinker's Creek. Our house was in the middle, the bar, Tinky's Tavern, where the man who hit my father got drunk that night is at the very end. And all in between are the latter rungs of dead Irish workers and the bones of a race native families. Somewhere the ground is stained with my father's blood mixed with car oil and with the screams of my mom and the moment Megan's mom knew she had to help save lives. It's all swirling about with the pain of my closeted caretaker and the pain of the pig farmer who I wish I could have kissed. You're not imagining it. The valley is full of ghosts. Mm. It's so good. Yay. Thanks, y'all. That was fun. My first reading. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I always just feel so incredibly lucky when incredible authors read to us. We had Emrys <laughs> read to us the other day, and I was just like, holy shit. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would I would love for people to read their beautiful words to me all the time. <laughs> so thank you so much. That was incredible. Thank you both so much. It's always, I mean, yeah, it's such a joy. You know, I adore you and the show and just so grateful to be in community with you. Same. Is there Same. anything else that you'd like to share before we um, say goodbye for now? 
Um, just that it's very difficult to like ask for support when everybody on the literal globe needs support. But if you are like somebody who has, you know, lots of resources, whatever, um, the, the publishing industry is being hit really fucking hard. And there's a lot of like small scale independent press authors like myself and other people, including people who don't have other sources of income, um, who, have really had their like big their big day their big like chance at getting their books noticed and all the things like their tours and all the things like the news the media strike stream like everything you want as a first time author um that has been taken from us because yeah. of because of all this which is you know small potatoes compared to a lot of things um although there are some authors who are certainly in more hard pressed conditions than than I'm in but all that is to say um it would mean so much whether it's ordering my book or any other author you know who has a book who had a book come out recently um their book from the library or buying it um sharing it uh writing goodreads or amazon reviews that shit is so important like fuck amazon forever but like that shit can be really 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 helpful um and it is my real dream that i can keep writing books and so it just means so 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 much if if this book like didn't just fizzle out um in the midst of corona yeah um and there is going to be some like online, like inst- like live kind of streamed readings that are being planned. So keep an eye out for that. Um, certainly follow me on all the platforms and you can keep up. Um, but that, yeah, just so again, I know it's small potatoes, but like support your local authors if that's a thing that you want to give some, even not money, but just like sharing and things like that too. Absolutely. Um, and we could not amplify that more. We'll put um, the links to your handles and stuff like that in the cool. description as well as um, beltpublishing.com. Cool. Um, oh, yeah, truly a delight as always. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to share about all of this today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Okay, that was our show. Of course, it was amazing because Rachel's amazing. Ugh. What the frick? Um, (laughs) uh, As always, you can holler at us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Season of the Bee. You can give um, us your money on Patreon. We got a bunch of Patreon-only content and things happening, like watch parties and stuff like that. So you should totally join us. Season of the Stoner is upon us. Oh, my God. Season of the Stoner is upon us, which we love to see. Um, and yeah, you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and that's, that's what we got to say about it. Yep. That's everything. (laughs) And go buy Rachel's book and go buy other books if you can. Yes. Um, or request that your library get them because that's also helpful for authors and then other people in your community get to go read it as well. So definitely. Yeah, and stay safe out there. Mental hugs to you all. Yep. Bye. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Season of the Bitch.